Our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Join us in reading the word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, and that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So ends the reading of God's word. For those of you three-year-old through kindergarten, you're dismissed to Children's Church. Thank you so much, Kevin. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Happy Memorial Day to all of you as we remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for high and lofty causes, especially like we prayed in my office not long ago among the worship team leaders for Christ who gave his life that we might live. Let's pray one more time before we turn to Revelation 2. Father, I thank you coming in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, for this faith family. I thank you for this word. I thank you for this memorial day, and I thank you for the privilege of sharing and proclaiming what you've shown me of yourself from this precious paragraph. Living and active in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls, and, and, and released, as it were, in power to achieve all the good ends you intend for it and not return void to you. Bless those Listening by recording or live stream, bless those who've gathered with us today and those who are affected by our lives after we live out this passage. Draw near, I pray, to those around the world suffering for the name of Christ. Draw near to us and equip us in a quiet and beautiful way by this powerful, fixed and yet living word to be ready for the day when we too may be called upon to make sacrifice for your precious name. Thank you, Lord, so much now for speaking to us and, and through this word for us in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory, I pray. Amen. Are you ready to die for your faith in Jesus Christ? If you did die for your faith in Jesus Christ, would it feel like a failure? Would it feel like the enemy has won and, oh, nuts, I lost? The bad guys won. Or would it seem rather like you were able to enjoy an honor to be known with Christ and in fellowship with him and his sufferings, one that you would count as a true joy? On Easter Sunday 2019 in the town of Colombo, Sri Lanka, a Sunday school teacher outdoors on a Sunday morning asked her 26 Sunday school students, how many of you see that Jesus loved you and died for you to give you eternal life, and if necessary, are you willing to die for him? And all 26 kids raised their hands. And one account says they lit a candle, and as they were walking from the tree on which she was teaching her Sunday school class and its shade over to where the larger outdoor gathering of the free Evangelical Pentecostal Church would gather outdoors on Easter Sunday 2019 in the town, publicly out in the open air. Some report that the children had a candle 
signifying their faith in Christ and their love for him, and they sang, this little light of mine. As the worship service was gathering together, Pastor Mahison was talking with a, a guest, a young man who had come, and people noticed later that he was sweating profusely. He had a backpack on. And the young man asked the question, why are all the Catholic churches closed today on Easter Sunday? I found them all closed, said the young man. Pastor Mahison said, out of an abundance of caution. But we are gathering here in an open-air setting, and you are welcome to join us. In just a moment, there was a horrifying explosion. And many believers of that church family were made martyrs in an instant, including two dozen of the children. The pastor himself survived, and he said this later, We are hurt. We are angry also. But still, as the senior pastor, the whole congregation, and every family affected, we say to the suicide bomber and also the group that sent him, to be a suicide bomber, we love you and we forgive you. No matter what you have done to us, we love you because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, said Pastor Mahis. And we also, who follow the footsteps of Jesus, we say, for the Lord, forgive these people. You either have at that moment the opportunity to say, Human free will in all its darkness is the cause of that evil bombing of that church on Easter Sunday morning in Sri Lanka in 2019. Which is ultimately to say, evil is so powerful it has the final say in the hearts of darkened heart human beings. And so you ultimately say, evil wins in the end in the world. Or you say, God wins. You, you widen your view and you look through the lens of Revelation and all the Bible and you say, oh, by the Spirit, I see that all those were given white robes and they're gathered as martyrs around the throne of the Lamb and they're asking, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our death? Either evil wins or God wins. Those are the only two options. Smyrna was the first century gateway to Rome from Asia. It was a beautiful harbor city just north of Ephesus, full of wealth and vibrant trade. It was a harbor sitting on these beautiful azure blue waters. It's the modern-day Turkish city of Izmir. There are almost three million people in that city today. But in the day that John was writing to Smyrna, there were maybe 200,000 people at the most in the region of Smyrna. On the highest hill overlooking the beautiful harbor, there is a high uh, hill with, called Mount Pagus, and on Mount Pagus, higher than that, is a temple to the many pagan deities, an Acropolis. They thought, of, they thought of that Acropolis as the crown over the city of Smyrna. They, they thought of the, the ring of beautiful uh, uh, temples built to other gods, almost like a necklace around the city of Smyrna, and they even thought of the harbor as a kind of a crown, and they thought of the city itself as the crown of Rome out in the entire region of Asia. Smyrnans loved to bow to their many pagan deities, and they worshipped in these magnificent temples, all with a refined glow of high society surrounding them. Yet, not surprisingly, this Greek city of Smyrna was sophisticated in its culture, but eagerly 
curried the favor of the Romans and received much formal political favor from Rome. So this Greek city currying the Roman favor gladly bows to all its pagan deities and bowed before Caesar, calling him Curios, Lord, and burned incense, incense burning to worship Caesar. The substantial Jewish population in Smyrna begged the favor of Rome as well. Several historians tell us that there were Jews who were not faithful to Yahweh, but since they had been displaced from Jerusalem, they sought to find favor and official sanction from the Romans. So they too were in this Greek city, Jews living, but they had their own worship as well. And they approved of the worship of the pagan gods. They even joined in with the saying, Caesar is Lord. And they too burned incense and received tremendous favor and protection from the Romans. It was into this happy, beautiful, glowing, multi-pagan, multi-god setting that the gospel of Jesus Christ was calling believers out and forming them into the church at Smyrna and making them rich with God. This newfangled cult called Christianity was known as a group of heretics, atheists they were called, because they didn't worship Caesar as Lord and they refused to burn incense to him in praise. This was a group of defective people who had left Judaism, as it was viewed, to worship this Galilean peasant who had been crucified as a criminal and called for the singular worship of himself alone. How arrogant, how blind, how mentally unstable were these so-called Christians. The Jews were happy to turn their names and identities and locations over to the Romans who made sure they did not get any jobs or livelihood or have any means of providing food for their children and ultimately were available to be purged. So the Christians in Smyrna were opposed by both religious and political authorities and whenever that happens, that sweetens and beautifies and supercharges true believers' faith in Jesus Christ, does it not? Into this persecuted but faith-rich band of believers, the risen Christ now speaks. Look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Remember, each letter to the seven churches begins with one element of the vision of Christ we saw in Revelation chapter 1. Hear what's revealed of Christ. I am the first and the last who died and came to life. The author knows and rules over time and history. Christ straddles reality. He's the first and the last. Everything happens inside his power and his control. He is transcendent and sovereign. He's the Lord over time. That's what the first and the last means. It's only used in the Old Testament to refer to God. So when Christ says this of himself, he says, yep, I'm God. But not only is he transcendent and sovereign over time and all that happens to the Smyrna church and to you and to me, he's also intimate, breaking into time, taking on flesh. He describes himself as one who died. The God who rules over time first and last is also the God who died and came back to life. This is the Lord of glory in his transcendent, 
otherness high above us and in his intimate, imminent nearness who knows us, who speaks to us, who died for us, and who rose again that we might rise again following him. Do you know this Christ personally? Do you know this Christ personally? Can you raise your hand with your Sunday school teacher and say, I too will die for Jesus if he asks me to? Do you know this Christ who says, when I call you to follow me, I will lead you, some of you, to die for my name because my love is better than anything you could enjoy in this life? Do you know this Christ personally? Does your spouse, does your parents, do your children, do your co-workers, do those who minister to you and go to church with you, And do your roommates know this Christ personally? Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. I will let my life be a burning, fragrant incense of praise to you, Lord, and you alone. Whoever else asks me for the incense of my praise, I will not give it. I will give it to you and you alone, for you are better than life. To the fleshly mind, this sounds obscene and insane. The worldly, unbelieving mind says, you are a colossal fool to endure discomfort for a Savior you can't even see. In this God-belittling world, being willing to live with pain for the honor of Christ is both insane and obscene. But for those who think truthfully and love deeply the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering for him closely unites us with him and confirms we are driven by the same aim as the Apostle Paul, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." What does the risen Christ, through the angel and John, the revelatory spokesman, say to encourage the church at Smyrna and us? He says three things. I am, I know, and I will give. I am, I know, and I will give. First he said, I am. I am the first and the last. I am the one who died and came to life. Now he says, I know, look at verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Christ knows the afflictions of the Christians in Smyrna. Remember, like walking among the lampstands with intimacy and with nearness and with love and affection, he knows what they're going through. It's just as James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He knows their poverty. He knows they can't find food for their children. He knows they don't have enough food or, or, or money to pay for shelter or clothing or any other basic needs of life. He knows that they have that need of poverty, and yet he knows it because he himself was poor. On our behalf, he knows of their tribulation. He knows of their poverty. But he says, in this world, you will have terrible trouble. You will be opposed by political and religious leaders and by the devil himself. And yet, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, John 16, 11. And he knows of poverty, yet says, 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He knows they've been slandered, as this verse says. These Christians were spoken ill of in public and private ways. They were gossiped about and lied about. They were blasphemed, literally. The word here is the very same thing that happened to Stephen and what he was falsely accused of in Acts 6.11 before he was made a martyr. Sometimes you can think about being so poor that you just learn to live with not having enough, but it's very hard to think about people, officials, and those you trust and those you once respected lying about you, saying false things about you, and blaspheming about you. The great African blasphemer, one of my heroes, John Newton, said this, everything is necessary that he sends, nothing is necessary that he withholds. I was reminded of that sentence in my studies this week, and I found it so helpful. Everything is necessary that he sends, everything, nothing is necessary that he withholds. The risen Christ knows well all the poverty, tribulation, and slander that believers are enduring in Yemen, Sudan, Libya, China, North Korea, Afghanistan, and many other places around the world. Maybe someday here. Maybe someday in your life. He knows. I am and I know. He also knows our future testing. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Why does he say do not fear? What's in this verse that should cause us not to fear? If we think about this, fear arises in our hearts, but why does he say don't fear? First, do not fear because he begins with the word behold. Behold. I'm laying this out in front of you. I'm telling you, behold. Look at this. I'm saying it all before it happens, so that when it happens, you will know that I'm God, I'm the first and the last, and I have control over all that's happening to you. Behold. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 19. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Here, He tells the Smyrnans and us ahead of time, you will be thrown by the devil into prison that you may be tested for 10 days of tribulation. Do not fear because the devil who does the throwing is a defeated foe. His throwing us into prison is only for God's testing. You may not realize it, but it's helpful to notice. It's in the passive, but it's explicitly clear in the original language. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. It doesn't say that he may tempt you or that he may destroy you. That's his intent, the devil. But it does say that you may be tested, and whenever be tested is used to believers, it's always God who means to reveal their true character. God is the one behind the devil's work of throwing believers into prison. The devil is a defeated foe. He himself will be thrown into prison shortly. We know that from the end of the book, and we've already read it. Do not fear. Christ tells you this in advance. Do not fear. The devil is a defeated foe. Do not fear because Christ rules over how long it will be. Ten days. Do you know what the original reader would have heard when the phrase ten days comes to mind? They would have immediately thought of Daniel and his three friends being tested because they wouldn't eat unclean foods in Babylon. They were tested with 
their diet for 10 days, a limited time. No, the magistrate in Smyrna doesn't get to say how long. No, the accusers don't get to say how long. No, the devil doesn't get to say how long. God says it's going to be a time of testing, 10 days. Christ says, do not fear. If you are thrown into a time of testing, it's God's ultimate doing, no matter what intermediate means he uses. And God will uphold you and strengthen you so that in that time of testing, you do not need to look within yourself and find resources and strength that you can muster. Oh no, we're so man-centered in our lenses of interpreting the scriptures that we immediately find a pang of fear rising in us and say, I don't think I could do it. Of course you can't do it. No temptation, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, This promise from Isaiah 41 is yours. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a son of Abraham. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think if it were up to me and somebody put some gun to my head or threaten me or my family to stand firm on my faith, I think I would fold. I'm pretty sure I would right about now. I I think I am completely abandoning my trustworthiness and ability to stand firm for Christ. But if I look to him, if he promises he's going to uphold me, and I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm looking to him and I'm telling you, don't think about whether you can do it or not. Don't let your imagination while I'm preaching go to, goodness, I wonder if I would be able to make it. I can answer the question for you. You can't. Guaranteed. But like the little children in Sri Lanka, they don't have to go through that weird kind of belly button examination where I'm deciding whether I'm strong enough to do it. And they certainly don't decide to structure their life in order to sort of steel themselves and build up calluses on their Christian life in order to be ready to go. No. Look to Christ. Keep on walking with him. Keep on praying with your children. Keep on reading the Bible and staying in step with the Spirit. He'll do all the rest. (laughs) He'll do everything. I am, I know, and I will give. Look at verse 10, the second half in verse 11. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Don't fear the first death. All persons, believers, and unbelievers must go through it. Fear rather the second death. In other words, fear hell. What's the overcoming of the second death? It's the second birth. If you conquer, if you remain faithful, trusting in Christ, looking to him, relying on him, you receive the crown of life. 
and escape the second death. That's the promise Christ makes to the church at Smyrna and the Spirit makes to each of us. Every call to conquer in the book of Revelation is not a call to add something on top of what Christ has done. There is such a propensity in man-centered thinking to twist the Bible and say somehow, okay, he saved me a long time ago, that's that gospel thing, but now I'm living out my Christian life and just doing my normal stuff, and now the Bible adds other things I have to do on top of that. And it feels like salvation plus extra credit, or it feels like salvation plus um, eating a lot of peas and carrots and running a marathon or something. I just have to do a lot more added on. That's not how to read the Bible. In fact, conquering means being faithful in this passage is nothing other than just being who you are. If the gospel has come into your heart and removed your sins and granted you Christ's righteousness, it just means let that out. Just be who you are. Let your character emerge. Just walk with your little candle and sing this little light of mine. And God will take care of the rest. Look what Jesus did to bear on our behalf the hell of the second death. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Christ overcame the second death. We take no confidence in our baptism or our praying to receive Christ or our acts of any sort or kind. He overcame the second death by the blood of his sacrifice. We trust and are saved by him and him alone. I will give you, he says, the crown of life. Here it's a reference to this glorious crown of victory that the Smyrnans loved to celebrate when they had their Olympics. Oh, the crown of the Acropolis and the pagan deities, the crown of all the beautiful buildings surrounding the hillside, the crown of our beautiful round harbor in its azure blue waters, and all the wealth coming in and out of Smyrna were the crown of Rome here in Asia. And we should give crowns, wreaths of laurel to the, to the ones who run and win the prize. All of those crowns Jesus is alluding to when he says to the Smyrnan Christians, you who are impoverished and under tribulation and slandered, yet you are rich with God. He gives no upbraiding or correction to the Smyrnans whatsoever because they are full of the riches of God. They're brimming with sweetness and love for Christ and joy. Even though they are starving, they have nothing and they are lied about and prepared for prison and ultimately death. The crown of the high temple, the Acropolis, is a woeful, dead, dilapidated relic, counterfeit, of the crown of Christ, who is the temple, torn down and in three days arisen again. The crown of the city is a horrible counterfeit pointing to the new Jerusalem, which is the people of God and the beautiful crown they will be to the Lord himself. And the crown on the head, the laurel wreath of the Olympic runner, 
is a woeful counterfeit to the eternal life that the believers in Smyrna and you and I, if we're trusting in Christ, already have. It's already ours. Jesus says, conquering, I'm going to give you what you already have. It's not an addition on top of the salvation that I purchased for you. It is the salvation I purchased for you. How do I know that? This is the core question that comes out of studying Revelation 2, 8 through 11. What does it mean to conquer? Am I conquering because I'm doing something above and beyond? Am I, am I somehow special? Am I Christian 2.0? Am I the mature, higher, I know more, I've done more, I've got secrets you don't have kind of Christian, arrogant and proud? Or is it just who we are? The apex passage many think in Revelation, I'm among them, is Revelation chapter 12. Listen as I quote it. It gives the answer to how we conquer and what conquering really means. What does it mean to be faithful to the end and receive the crown of life? Listen carefully. Romans, Revelation 12, rather, 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice. John speaks in heaven saying, this is an angel speaking, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. How do you conquer unbelief and sin in the world? How do you conquer the devil? By the blood of the Lamb. Here's how I do it. I was thinking about this as I was laying in bed last night. I almost got up middle of the night, wrote this down. Should have probably. God help me remember right now. I think the blood of the Lamb helps us conquer in at least three ways. First, it says, you know all those sins that you feel guilty about that make you want to shrink back from standing up and speaking for Jesus? Christ wiped them out. They're gone. They're cleansed. They're gone. The blood of the Lamb is the salvation we have. It has conquered the guilt and the sin that I have brought to the Lord in all my need. He came to me, wiped away by the propitiation of his blood, the guilt of my sin. He also transformed, a second way, my propensity to sin, my sin nature, that thing inside me that constantly wants to pull me back into darkness and ugliness and disobedience and unfaithfulness. He conquered By the blood of the Lamb, my sin nature. He made me a new person, in other words. I'm a new creature in Christ. And third, he gave me a vision, a passion, a zeal to boldly proclaim him when otherwise I would have been timid or fearful. He has equipped me, in other words, by the blood of the Lamb to speak the word of my testimony, just as in Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony testimony. You know when you come to that moment when you or your family members, your children, your loved ones are being threatened for your faith in Christ, you don't have to rehearse ahead of time what you will say because by the power of the blood of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, you will be given the words to say. Praise his name. The question, will you be ready, is not, have you done enough? Have you hoarded enough? Have you packed away enough? Have you sharpened enough? Have you calloused up enough? That's not the answer. The answer is be like a child. Be who you are. 
conquer by the blood of the Lamb and say, this is who I am. I am forgiven. I am filled with His righteousness and faithfulness. And I am engaged in His disciple-making cause on the earth. Let the fires come. I want my life to be an incense. I want my life to be a praise and an offering. Let the fires come. In Smyrna, when John's book of Revelation, including the note to the Smyrna church, arrived among the seven churches in probably 96 or so A.D., somewhere in there, there was a young man, 25 or so, in Smyrna, a Christian. His name was Polycarp. Not much later, within the next 10 years or so, John would be released from the Isle of Patmos in exile, and he would come back as an aging man to Ephesus and Smyrna, only 35 miles apart, and he discipled young Polycarp for those 10 years until Polycarp became 36 years old, according to the historians. And at that time, Polycarp was made the pastor of the church at Smyrna, Bishop of Smyrna, a boy from that town, discipled by John, became the pastor at Smyrna. Polycarp was the pastor there for 50 years, from age 36 to age 86, at which time the Roman officials, prompted by Jewish fear and jealousy of John, of John and of Polycarp, called for his martyrdom. They called for his refusal to honor and burn incense to Caesar and his public statement to say, Caesar is Lord and burn incense to him publicly. And Polycarp refused. He wasn't hiding, but he was staying at a farm, according to his biographer. I'll let his words tell it better than my own. Listen carefully. Three days before his capture, Bishop Polycarp, resting at a farm, fell into a deep trance. On regaining consciousness, he declared to his friends he'd received a vision. He had seen his pillow bursting into flame around his head. Polycarp had no question that the vision meant he was going to be burned alive for his faith. Not long after, the Roman authorities captured two slaves. One of them broke down under torture and revealed the location of the farm where Polycarp was staying. When soldiers arrived on horseback to seize him, Polycarp refused to run. Instead, he offered his captors food and drink requesting only that he be allowed an hour for prayer. When they agreed, Polycarp prayed so earnestly that one hour became two. Just kind of wondering, did he get away? Several of the soldiers regretted their role in the arrest of such a venerable old man. Cowards they were. They then put Polycarp on a donkey and led him back to the city. Upon arrival, his captors ushered him into the carriage of a man named Herod, the captain of the local troops. Herod tried to convince Polycarp to save himself. Why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering simple incense? When Polycarp refused the very suggestion of renouncing Christ, the official grew threatening and forced him out of the carriage so roughly that Polycarp injured his legs. 
Without even turning, Polycarp marched on quickly as they escorted him to the stadium where he could hear a deafening roar arose from the throng of spectators as he entered. His Christian companions heard a voice from above saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man he was brought before the proconsul who urged him to deny his faith and bow before the emperor, swear by the spirit of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists, meaning away with Christians, and turning with a grim look toward the crowd, calling for his death, Polycarp gestured at them and he said, away with the atheists. Undeterred, the proconsul pressured him further to deny Christ, Polycarp declared, 86 years I've been his servant, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Once more, the proconsul urged Polycarp to swear by Caesar. This time, Polycarp replied, Since you pretend not to know who and what I am, you see, it's just who you are. Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn more about Christianity, I will be happy to make an appointment with you. Furious, the proconsul said, don't you know I have wild beasts waiting? You know they starved them for weeks to get those beasts hungry. I'll throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp answered, bring them on. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Next, the proconsul threatened to burn him alive. To this, Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for a little while and is soon extinguished. You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do what you wish. Polycarp and many, many others have decided to let their lives be a fragrant aroma of incense to the Lord and the Lord alone. The story ends this way. The proconsul sent his herald out into the arena to announce that Polycarp had confessed to being a Christian. At this, the assembled crowd seethed with uncontrolled fury and called for Polycarp to be burned alive. Quickly, they assembled a pyre, gathering wood from workshops and from public baths. We've got to burn this guy. We must make him smell like incense. Polycarp removed his clothes and tried to take off his shoes, though his advanced age made it difficult. His guards prepared to nail him to the stake, but he told them calmly, Leave me as I am, for the one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength to remain at the stake, unmoved, without being secured by nails. They bound his hands behind him. Polycarp offered a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God. His captors ignited the wood. According to observers, the flames grew They did not consume Polycarp as expected. The fire formed a circle around him, but his body did not burn. Since the fire did not have its intended effect on Polycarp's body, an executioner was ordered to stab him to death with a dagger. Then his blood extinguished the flames. Fear not. Be faithful unto death. He will give you the crown of life, which is exactly what you already have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word to Smyrna, and I thank you for the word it is to me by your spirit to be faithful to you. Forgive me when I have sought the comforts of this world and, and elevated them to a value higher than they deserve and not readied my heart and readied my 
family and my church family to be among those who gladly offer our lives as a living incense to you. Many in this room, likely the vast majority in the age we're living, in such ease and luxury will not be called upon to give physically our lives for the name of Christ. But that's up to you, Lord. Please help us so rest in who we are, so rest in the powerful blood of the Lamb, so rest in your goodness that we might be ready. Thank you so much for those who've gone on before. Thank you for the witness of Christians around the world, even today, whose lives are threatened for the name of Christ. I can't think of any other reason to die than for Jesus, and therefore I can't think of any other cause to live for. Thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for his death on our behalf and this transformative work he achieves in his people to equip us and ready us to love and serve him in the very same way. While his death was atoning, ours is adoring. While his death was removal of sin, ours is because he grants to us his righteousness. Thank you so much for helping us this day Remember surely so many who have given the ultimate sacrifice, but oh, how we would remember those who are dressed in white, gathered around your throne and worshiping you, the lamb who was slain. We pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.